Welcome to the London Magazine podcast. I'm Lily. I'm the online digital assistant. And I'm Lucy. I'm the managing editor at the London Magazine. We're a bi-monthly publication and we publish fiction, poetry, essays, etc. And through the podcast, we would love to introduce you to some of our writers and also take the chance to introduce you to our brand new June-July issue with poetry by Paul Tran and Rebecca Goss short fiction by Jonathan Meads and R.Z. Bashir, essays by Graham Cavaney and Darren Anderson, and reviews by Susie Fay and Stuart Walton, to name but a few. So our aim for the podcast was to create a space for our readers to really get to know our writers better, and also to give our writers a space to talk about their work. We want to create a dialogue between readers of the magazine and contributors, as we know that writing is often a really isolating and solitary experience. So we would love it if you could send in any of your literary SOSs, any dilemmas you might be going through at the moment, whether that's annoying housemates being just a bit too noisy or writer's block, please do send in your dilemmas and we'll pose them to our guests and hopefully we'll be able to solve all your problems for you. Yeah, literally. All of them. All of them. So you can find a link to our Google form in our show notes and also on our socials. So you can find us on Instagram at The London Magazine and then on Twitter at The London Mag and then on Facebook, just type in The London Magazine. Hope you enjoy the podcast. So today we're delighted to be talking to our very first ever guest, Jessie Greengrass. Jessie's short story collection, An Account of the Decline of the Great Orc, According to the One Who Saw It, won the Edge Hill Prize in 2016. Her first novel, Sight, was published in 2017 and has been shortlisted for the Women's Prize and longlisted for the Welcome Book Prize. Her novel, The High House, was published in 2021 and was shortlisted for the Costa Novel Award 2021 and the Orwell Prize for Political Fiction 2022. We're delighted to have published her short story, A Lone Astronaut Watches the World End, which is in our brand new June-July issue. So to start off, we'd love to ask Jessie to do a short reading of the piece to get you in the mood. Thank you. A lecture hall in summer. Heat. Light. A fly buzzing against a window, the sound of a lawnmower coming in through a window. I sit, chin propped on palm, side by side with others on one of many long benches, listening to a woman in a space authority uniform say, there are many kinds of loneliness. You must learn them and you must learn to tolerate them. She says, it is a matter of practice. She says, you can't pretend that it won't happen, the feeling that you can't bear another moment, that you would tear yourself apart to escape being so alone, but you must learn to live inside it. You must learn to let it rise and fall. I thought that I had learned. I thought I knew its shades, its swell. First, I learned the loneliness of hotel rooms. I learned how the sound of voices in the corridor, the sound of laughter, of joy seeping through a wall, is the tearing of a wound. Next, there was the matched lonelinesses of absence and distance. I learned the loneliness of leaving and that of having left. I learned how, at times, the thought of everything that is out of reach or that is lost or will be lost will knock the breath from you and make you feel that you are drowning in the gap between one second and the next. And then at last I learned the loneliness of orbit. I learned that this final loneliness is the loneliness of endless silence and the emptiness of time, of space, and I thought that my inhabitation of it was a kind of conquering. But now I know what lies beyond it. My solitude always had an end before. I swam towards it. 
I swam through each second and through each minute, through the turning of the days and nights, swimming towards home. Now there is no more swimming and no more home. Thanks, Jessie. That was, that was really great. And something that really came across during your reading was how this is a monologue piece that is just so powerful and evocative, well, well read aloud. And it has previously been broadcast on Radio 4. So I wonder, did you write it intending it to be a spoken piece? No, but I think that a lot of the short stories that I write, I tend to think of in terms of monologues. So I tend to think of them as, as a sort of narrator trying to explain themselves or justify themselves. And that that is kind of the area that really interests me. So I, I was, you know, thinking of it as, as this sort of man in space trying to justify his possibly quite poor decisions. <laughs> <laughs> his absence is clearly emotional, but it's also extremely physical. Can you tell us a bit more about why you chose to set it in space and did you write it as a monologue to emphasize his isolation um so i wrote it in like the second month of the first lockdown mm. and um and it was a weird time to be writing anything and and i i was really trying to capture that kind of very odd feeling of being kind of like stuck in a bubble you know feeling like you were watching kind of the end of the world sort of unfurl mm. and it and and it felt like you know it felt so kind of terrible but also it like the, there were so many issues of like culpability and so it just felt like a way of getting at that to to kind of to have him be so isolated in space you know to have this kind of like he's up there watching everything sort of fall apart um I mean, again, like I didn't kind of consciously think of the monologue as being a way of, of kind of emphasising the isolation. I think it's just that that's a natural way that, of, that it feels like the natural way of writing for me. Mm. And was it important to you to write as first person? That is sort of what interests me. I, like, I, I haven't always written everything in the first person, but a lot of my work is in the first person because I just am really interested in the way that people describe their own lives and the way that they kind of talk about themselves. And, you know, like in this story, there's a lot of, of him kind of trying to justify the way that he's lived and, and, and kind of beginning to realise that, that it may be like he's not been the person that he thought he was and th and those are the things that really interest me and I feel like writing in the first person is a, is, is a really good way of getting at those things. Different versions of, of love and parenting are, are present in a number of your works. Francesca, the mother in the high house, for example, is absent from most of the daily parenting tasks, choosing instead to devote her time to warning others of impending climate catastrophe while also building an arc-like house to save her children. Whereas the astronaut seems to be completely overwhelmed by day-to-day -day parenting events, such as his child getting measles or falling over, almost finding his feelings quite unbearable to deal with at times. These characters can appear to be detached and unconventional in their approach to parenting. Are you trying to show them in a light that makes their absence and quite complicated acts of care seem more understandable and even relatable yeah I think so or at least to kind of explore that area like oddly so when I first started writing the high house or when I first had the idea for the high house the very early kind of stages of it the Francesca um I think I mean I've said this before Francesca was a man um so but she was just really not very interesting <laughs> as a man <laughs> you know she, she obviously she is a sort of she she's a humanitarian 
um, and a scientist. And as a man, you know, she has a baby uh, and then goes, like, when her son is very small, she goes away because she feels like um, there there are more important places for her to be. And, like, when, if, if you make that character a man, it just is, like, it's uncontroversial, you know. He's had a baby and... And gone back to work, you know. But the minute you the minute you change it to a mother, it feels morally like really freighted. It feels morally complicated. Um, and I definitely wanted in the high house to talk about the 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 issues that the cli that climate change brings up about who we care for and who we choose who we choose to save, who we choose to protect. Um, and and having this character who chooses to try and save other people before she tries to save her family because they need it more, you know, um, felt like it was an important thing to, to try and write about, to try and talk about. And obviously, you know, the, the driver of the book early on is that she can't actually do it. You know, she does build an arc for her children because you can't, it, because it's very hard to, you know, not try and save the people closest to you. Just building on that, climate fiction or cli-fi is a grown branch of fiction literature that deals with the effects of climate change on human society the high house tells of a world on the edge of environmental catastrophe and your story tells of an astronaut looking down upon a dying planet as a writer do you feel you have a duty to bring attention to these issues no i don't think that anybody i don't think that y you know i think that i think you have to be really careful as a writer not to think that you're important <laughs> um but I also, I also don't, I don't know, I don't see how you can ignore it. It, you know, it, it is, as, as time goes on, you know, over the last sort of 10 years, it just feels like it's become more and more central. And how do you write about the world that we live in today without, to some extent, addressing those, those massive issues, mm -hmm. um, you know, which are tied in really closely to, um, you know, to other issues, to kind of dispar disparities of wealth, um, you know, historic injustices, like it, all, all of these things are kind of tied up together and it feels increasingly impossible not to address them. Or at least it feels like you can't not address them and have that be neutral. Yeah. You know, you have to, if you're, if you're not writing about that, you've chosen not to write about it. And going back to you mentioning before how there seemed to be a, a theme of choice as well for the character of Francesca in the High House. Was the climate crisis an influence on the astronaut leaving his family and Earth? Was he sent on a mission to try to save the world or is his a, a chosen detachment? It it seems like you, you play, are quite playful with both a sense of connection and disconnection, absence and responsibility. I wonder what it is that has driven the astronaut to go into space and isolate himself in such an extreme way. So I guess when I, I mean, this is an interesting one because I think that the story has been read in in a way that I didn't necessarily sort of intend it to be. I, in my, in the way that I imagined it, he, it's like accidental. Like, you know, he's gone into orbit and while he's there, something you know and this this is like it's something that happened you know you the there were soviet astronauts um um when the berlin you know, wall came down you know and they went they went up citizens of east berlin and came back down i don't that, that maybe that's wrong actually that, i don't know the details of that <laughs> certainly there was there's, there was a ukrainian um astronaut 
you know. And so what I imagined was that he is doing whatever. I don't know why astronauts go into space. Why do they? I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. He is doing whatever astronauts do. And while he's up there on his space station, um, the world ends, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and so he's got no choice but to watch it, I mm -hmm. guess. Um, I hadn't imagined that he had gone there on purpose to avoid it. But I guess that, that, that that's a possibility. I, in, in my sort of imagination, he's gone there um, and then it's coincidental and that's what makes him realise, you know, that there is, there's, you know, that there's, that he had always taken for granted the fact that people care about him. I think the, both the high highs and the short story force the reader to think about what sort of choices they would make um, and who they would choose to save if they were in a similar position. As a parent yourself, are you conscious of the tensions and choices that the climate crisis presents? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it feels terrifying. But then I also think that it is... I think that the, the climate crisis is particularly difficult to kind of think about because the people who are on the cutting edge of it are not here now like there are you know there are particularly in the global south you know people have been really suffering and um, bearing the brunt of this crisis for years now and nobody has been paying attention and it feels like the closer it gets to us the more we're like oh god there's a, you know there's a climate crisis it's actually real um and so I, I i it does feel to me like issues of of kind of who you care about and and caring about your own family first are central to how we kind of navigate it and how we sort of emotionally deal with it. I think that as human beings, that's what we're very good at. And that's 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 great in some situations, you know, in, in, in many of the crises that we've sort of faced as a species, like if you're, you know, the, the ability to sort of hunker down and protect your family is as a survival mechanism is really good. As a survival mechanism for the climate crisis, it's terrible because... Yeah. By the time the water is lapping at our toes, it is too late. And also, by the time the water is lapping at our toes here, many, many other people will be dead. Mm. And those people are important. Like those people are as important as we are. You know, it's but but it's it's just. I mean, it, I it, I find it mind-boggling and terrifying, and you know, really sad. And also, it makes me incredibly angry. <laughs> Do you feel that the tension between both the, the losing yourself in, in daily tasks, going to work, meeting friends, looking after your family. Do you feel it can be balanced out with also being active, having an active part in, in trying to stop you know, the climate crisis? Because it definitely seems in, in the High House that there is a tension between the two almost, and, and sometimes you either fall on one side or the other. Do you think there is... Uh, a way to meet in the middle yeah but I also and, and also I think that you can't stop caring about what's for lunch just because mm. you know you, you ha there has to be a way of doing of doing both um, you know and the climate crisis is also a systemic problem and it's not necessarily the job I mean as individuals we can definitely kind of do our bit and I think talking about it is a big part of that but it's not going to be solved by individual action is this, you know it's a it's a much broader systemic problem but yeah I mean I, I I guess I don't I've not tried in the book 
to offer a solution. I think it is. Ju it was just my way of sort of teasing out these problems and kind of drawing the territory, I guess. Would you like to take the chance now to tell us what you're working on at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> I know, we've gone from one very heavy subject. <laughs> Um, I mean, I've been working on something for about six months and it's been going terribly, but I feel like I'm finally beginning to kind of unpick. I'm really bad at talking about what I'm what I'm doing Why just because terribly. I, don't, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it I, I don't know. The beginning is always the hardest bit because, you you know, you're f finding finding what the you know, what it is that you want to write about and how you're going to write about it. feels like that's the really hard bit. And once you've got that, the rest kind of follows. Mm. Um I don't know. Also, you know, it's a weird time to try and write for all of these reasons because, you know, I don't like particularly kind of in the year in, in the sort of this like in inverted commas post pandemic world, you know, how do you write a novel set now that isn't about the pandemic, but also how do you write one that is because it feels like I'm, I don't feel comfortable. I mean, I know that people have, there are other people who've written novels about the pandemic and, and you know, it's important that that is territory that we do write about, but I don't feel personally that I can find a way to write about it that isn't in some sense sort of uncomfortable, <laughs> uncomfortably, I don't know, not exploitative, but, you know, I, I just don't feel like I can. So, so I think that that's, that's been a, a big part of it is trying to find a way to write a book that explores the things that I want to explore without, you know without necessarily addressing those things head on um I'm also very bad about at talking about the specifics of what I'm doing because as soon as I start talking about it, it just sounds like a terrible idea <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like oh god no don't write that that's awful <laughs> well that's a good segue into a section of our podcast our literary SOS section. Writing and getting a break into the publishing industry can seem really overwhelming and isolating. So we wanted to reach out to our readers and listeners in the hope of creating a safe space to voice their literary dilemmas and ask advice from someone who's been through it, has experience with getting with their work out there. So we're going to read a dilemma that's been sent in anonymously for you. Um, just to ponder, we'd love your guidance on it. If that's okay. Okay, yeah. So here we go. My dilemmas often stem from the fact publishing feels like a choose-your-own-adventure barbed with countless booby traps. One misstep at any given moment and its curtains. So instead of making decisions, I tend to freeze. Here's the current juncture I find myself at. If a query wins the attention of a number of literary agents but months and months pass with no word from any of them on the full manuscript, should I A, recognise silence as disinterest and accept defeat, B, chase after the agents via email and risk irritating them into a rejection, or C, live in patience slash naive hope while getting on with the next project? Over to you, Jessie. Um... This, I mean, it, it is, yeah, it is fraught. It feels hard. It doesn't actually get any easier, I have to say. Like, I feel, you know, I've, there's lots of it that, I, that, you know, there's lots of the publishing process that I do find kind of, like, overwhelming and exhausting and emotionally draining, even, you know, with sort of the, the, the early bit of a career behind me. Um, I mean, I think one thing is that the agents are not kind of weird monsters. They are nice but busy. So I... 
I really would be surprised if an email, like if, you know, I think if, you, if you're emailing every day saying, why haven't you read my book? Why haven't you read my book? Why haven't you read my book? That's one thing. Mm-hmm. But I'm in an email, like a polite email saying, I wonder if you could, you know, give me, a re- if, if you could give me a response. And then if you don't get a response to that email, m- you know, maybe that is a sign. But I don't think that you should worry that sending one polite email is going to result in a positive decision becoming a negative decision. Um, I also think that having something else on the go is the best way of dealing with the um, kind of emotional fallout of either acceptance or rejection. It doesn't matter which way it goes. If you're working on something else, it will just it will just give you it will give you a refuge, a kind of creative refuge. So I would say a bit of the second one and a bit of the third one. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a bit of chasing, but playing it cool, chasing. Yeah. Well, a bit of chasing, but also for your own sanity, start thinking about another project. Because even if the you know even if the book that you're querying is published, you'll still need to write another one afterwards. That is that is unfortunately the nature of the pie eating competition, in which mm. the prize is eating more pie. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jesse. It's been really great to chat with you today. If you would like to read Jesse's short story, then it's available online on our website. Or you can buy the print copy of our June-July issue on our shop page with the link in the show notes. Um, thank you so much, Jesse. Thank, you so, thank much. you so much for having me. It's been lovely. Thank you. You can find Jesse on Twitter at Jess Greengrass. And we'd also definitely recommend you picking up a copy of The High House. It's a really, really captivating read. Thank you all for listening. We've had a really great time and we hope you've enjoyed it too. We'd love to hear from you, so please do keep sending in all of your dilemmas, however weird they are. Get in touch and don't forget also to send us in some of your work. We'd love to read it. You can find all of our submission guidelines on our website. You can find us on Instagram at The London Magazine, on Twitter at The London Mag and then on Facebook, we're just The London Magazine. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.